0: Hey, crime salad listeners welcome back to another episode of crime salad my name is ashley
1: and i'm ricky
0: and we are here with another episode for you uh, before we begin we have two patrons that we'd like to shout out ooh, ooh. thank you so much jamie and nigel you guys are awesome thanks for supporting this podcast Listeners like Jamie and Nigel now have access to all of our episodes from the beginning of time. And they're all ad free.
1: Not a single (laughs) ad.
0: Yeah. Um, So you guys can sign up on Patreon.com slash Crime Salad Podcast for as little as one dollar.
1: Wow, that's cheap.
0: Yeah, that's like a candy bar.
1: Half a candy bar.
0: Half a candy bar. (laughs) Um, If you're having some trouble, just send us a message and we'll be happy to help you out.
1: I'll be happy to help you out.
0: Yeah. He's more of the tech guy, obviously.
1: So I wanted to talk about this case because it's kind of like it's made my head like tingle. Honestly, it's like one of my favorite shows and your favorite shows is, is Breaking Bad. Yeah. And it was it's just so good, you know, and, and a lot of it I thought was true. And it, it turns out that I think some of it kind of is true. And then this case kind of does it in like the correct way. Yeah. Which is kind of nuts. Yeah. Well, it's Breaking Bad, but not without, like, the. it's not the meth. It's not any of that. But some of the, like, things that we're going to talk about at the end of the episode are definitely, like, Breaking Bad vibes.
0: They really are. It's, like, pretty scary. It is. We'll talk more about it, and you guys will understand. But I can't believe that, you know, these chemicals are available to people. Yeah. And... It makes me wonder how many people, like missing person cases actually are um, result from this where they just can't find the body. Because it, it
1: blows my mind and it makes you like look at some, not all, but some cold cases yeah. a little bit different when they can't find the body. All right. It's nuts.
0: possible. All right. Well, let's jump into this week's episode. Some of the killers we've talked about had terrible childhoods filled with abuse and unimaginable grief. Some have convinced themselves that their potential gains, maybe money or protecting a secret, justify their crime. And while none of this justifies murder, it can help us try to better make sense of a horrible tragedy. But there is no such motive or sympathetic backstory for the man who brutally killed Karen Buckley, a 24-year-old Irish nurse and master's student who was enjoying a night out with friends in Glasgow in April 2015. As the judge said in his sentencing, Alexander Pacteau was a callous and calculating murderer who took the life of a young woman who just happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. From the available reports, there was not much in Alexander Pacto's history to make one suspect he would grow into a cold murderer. Alexander was raised in a suburb of Glasgow in Scotland by his French father, Giam, and his Scottish mother, Noreen. He was the oldest, and his three siblings, a sister and two brothers, seemed to have a comfortable upbringing. The town of Bearsden, where Alexander grew up, is one of the top 10 wealthiest areas in Britain. Many people in the town regularly commute into Glasgow for work or school, and there are many golf courses in the surrounding area. Like many others in the town, Alexander attended a private prep school, Calvinside Academy in Glasgow, until his fifth year when he was around 11 years old. He wasn't great at school, but did enough to get by. He had a small group of friends, but he was always a bit awkward. In the second half of his education, Alexander moved to Bearsden Academy where he did better than he had in primary school. He finished school at 17 and had plans to start his own business, like his parents. He started school at Annies Lynn College for business, but he dropped out within the first year. Despite his seemingly healthy middle-class upbringing, Alexander continued to struggle socially and potentially revealed some signs of the evil he was capable of. In late November 2011, when he was 17, he was accused of attacking a 24 year old woman he met outside of a nightclub. Supposedly, Alexander struck up a conversation with the woman and offered to share a cab ride home. He suggested that they take a shortcut to the area where the taxis were, but when they were alone, he suddenly attacked her in an alley. He attempted to rape the woman, but she screamed. People walking by heard her and came to stop him. Although there were witnesses to the attack, it did not go to trial immediately. Before he could be tried, Alexander was in a car accident and was placed in a medically induced coma for nearly four weeks. He had many broken bones, including ribs and his hip. Though he survived the accident, it did take him six months to walk again, and he had to use crutches for the next year after that. He was receiving money through a disability allowance, but eventually that money ran out. The case eventually went to court in February 2013, where Alexander was charged with attempted rape. He was acquitted of this crime after a majority of the jury found him not guilty. At the trial, Alexander claimed that he never would have committed this crime because he was gay. He claimed that the woman attacked him first by slapping him in the face and that he was pushed to the ground. The passerbys who had rescued the young woman from her attacker said that they had seen Alexander buckling his belt as they came closer. Alexander brushed this off, saying his belt had simply come undone while he was being attacked. It's hard to believe this woman could have taken down a man of Alexander's size. He was six foot four and heavily built and that his belt would have come loose in the process. But nonetheless, he was never charged for this crime. Foreshadowing the horror that was to come, Alexander told the court at the trial that he'd rather be charged with murder than attempted rape, as he believed rape to be the lowest of low. Over the next two years while he was in recovery after his accident, Alexander's parents divorced. Since he was still recovering from his injuries, he moved in with his mother, but he wasn't happy there, and soon he tried to move back in with his dad. Things didn't go well there either. They repeatedly fought, supposedly because of issues between Alexander and his dad's new girlfriend. Finally, his dad kicked him out, and he got an apartment of his own. Alexander was never known for his social skills, and in his late teens and early 20s, this was no different, leading him to move around frequently. In one apartment, his roommates were called thinking of him as a very creepy person. Some of the female roommates in his next apartment didn't want to be home alone with him. He would often talk about sex and made people feel rather uncomfortable. To pay the rent, Alexander had multiple sporadic jobs. At one time he worked at a garden store, and another time he was selling fireworks. One coworker who was interviewed didn't feel as creeped out as his female roommates did. He said that they called Alexander a gentle giant at work. He did note that Alex was pretty open about his life, saying that he would always talk about meeting sex workers. The coworker said that he was fantastical, always dreaming up of odd things. He later recalled that Alexander had once said he was thinking about how to create the perfect murder, and that he ultimately decided that the best way would be to destroy the body in a barrel of acid. But given that he wasn't great at holding down a job, and that his disability money from the accident had run out, Alexander turned to another crime, forgery. Before his accident, Alexander had wanted to start a furniture business and had most of it set up. Given the severity of his injuries, though, he wasn't able to work for an extended period of time. He was reportedly ashamed of his inability to make his own money or to keep the business alive. So he began to forge his own, roughly around 6,000 pounds of counterfeit money. Police raided his apartment and found the low-tech operation Alexander had been running. He was scanning money, printing it out, and simply cutting the paper to pass it off as real money. He was arrested for his crime, but didn't receive any jail time. Instead, he was sentenced to 225 hours of community service to be completed over the next nine months.
1: Karen Buckley could not have been more different than Alexander Pacto. Karen was the youngest of four. She was originally from Glynn, a tiny community outside of Cork in south of Ireland. After finishing her bachelor's degree in nursing at the University of Limerick in January 2014, Karen moved to Glasgow, where she was studying for her master's in occupational therapy, at Glasgow Caledonian University. While she was getting her nursing degree, she worked in hospitals and spent some time traveling after graduation. She visited the US, South Africa, and Thailand before she took a job at Princess Alexandra Hospital in Essex, about halfway between London and Cambridge in England. And she worked there for about a year before moving to Glasgow for school. Karen was very outgoing and had a close-knit group of friends. She shared an apartment with some other Irish classmates in Glasgow near her university. She was also very close to her family. John Buckley, her father, said she was an outgoing girl who loved to travel. She also really liked fashion. On April 11, 2015, Karen and her roommates got ready for a night out in Glasgow's West End. This was a popular area with bars and restaurants only a 10-minute drive from their university. They arrived at the Sanctuary nightclub just before 11.30 p.m. The girls were having a great time, and one friend recalls that Karen had been drinking, but she wasn't drunk. Around 1 a.m., she told her friends that she was going to the bathroom. But as minutes turned hours, she never returned. Her friends were concerned about her disappearance, but assumed that she just made her way home or had met someone. But when no one had seen her come home by lunch the next day, they called the police to report her missing. While on the night of the 11th, Alexander, 21 years old at the time, and seven of his friends also had plans to go to the sanctuary. The group had originally met up at Alexander's house, which was near the club. The boys originally called two cabs, but when one only showed up, Alexander drove his own car to the club instead. The group arrived about 11:20 pm and took their seats at one of the booths that they had reserved in the club. Around 1am, Alexander left the club and his friends to walk outside when he first met Karen. She was alone and they struck up a conversation. It's not completely clear why she agreed to go with him, but they crossed the street towards Alexander's car, presumably because he had offered her a ride home. After they were both in the car, Alexander started driving towards Garnet Hill, where Karen lived. But he suddenly turned down a different street, away from her apartment. The CCTV shows Alexander traveled down Kelvin Way and parked. Twelve minutes later, his car came back down the street, in the opposite direction. During those 12 minutes, Alexander grabbed Karen's neck, trying to choke her. She fought back hard, but Alexander grabbed a metal wrench and began to beat Karen in the head with it. He hit her about 12 times, cracking her skull. Karen died in that car, less than 20 minutes after she had met her murderer outside the club. After he killed Karen, Alexander drove around Glasgow before dumping her purse in a trash can in the park. He then went back to his house around 2 a.m., went inside to get a sheet and wrapped Karen's body in it. He then carried her into the house and went to sleep. When he woke up the next morning... Alexander began to work on his plan to dispose of the body. Using his cell phone, he searched for information about acidic properties of sodium hydroxide and where to purchase it. Sodium hydroxide, also known as lye or caustic soda, is a chemical that can cause severe chemical burns in concentrated forms and also breaks down proteins. But it's also used for many industrial or manufacturing processes, such as making soap. Alexander went to the home supply store down the road and purchased six liters of lye, a mask, and gloves. He drove to a second store to collect even more lye. He also threw the murder weapon in a canal near his apartment. When he got home, he took Karen's clothes off of her body and put her in the bathtub, which he then filled with lye. Alexander's roommate was out for the day with his mother, and Alexander texted him to find out when he would be back. When he replied that he'd be back around 8 p.m. that night, Alexander realized that he didn't have a lot of time, and he would need to speed up this process. He began to cut her body to get the acid in, and he hoped that this would help dissolve the body faster by allowing the chemical to get into the internal organs. Around 5 p.m. that night, he drained the tub and moved Karen's body back into his bedroom. At this point, he had to change disposal tactics. On Monday morning, he purchased a 60-gallon blue barrel, more lye, clothing, padlocks, and a lighter. He then took his bloody mattress 20 minutes north to High Crixton Farm, where he burned it, his duvet, an old suitcase, and Karen's clothing. When he got home, he stuffed Karen's body in a barrel and brought it out to his car. A neighbor saw him struggling to load it into his car around 2 p.m. that afternoon. He drove straight back to High Crichton Farm, where he was renting a storage locker. He put the barrel in the storage unit, filled it with the sodium hydroxide, locked it with one of the padlocks purchased that morning, and then went home thinking that he had just gotten away with murder.
0: After Karen was reported missing by her roommates and friends, it wasn't long before police figured out that Alexander was the last person to have seen her alive. Scotland police went to the nightclub where staff showed the police the CCTV from that Saturday night. They saw Karen leave the club and cross the road around 1 a.m. She was seen talking to a man outside. The staff at the sanctuary didn't know the man's name, but recognized him from a group that reserved the booth and knew the name of another member of that group of men. When police contacted that friend, he quickly identified Alexander as the man who was talking to Karen on the CCTV. From interviews, social media, and phone records, police suspected that Karen and Alexander had never before and had not interacted while in the club. They had only just met a few minutes before they got into his car. Police came to interview Alexander around 6 p.m. on Monday evening. When police knocked on his door, he told them, I was just coming to see you. He willingly went down to the police station to be interviewed. He told investigators that he took Karen back to his house where they had sex and that she left his place to walk home around 4 a.m. Despite their suspicions, the police said in a public statement the next day that Alexander was not a suspect, but that they hoped anyone who had seen anything would come forward. They also suggested it was a missing persons case, though at this point they likely suspected the possibility of foul play. However, by Wednesday, Alexander was back in custody. Forensic analysis of Alexander's apartment detected Karen's blood, and by this time, Karen's purse had been found at Dalsam Park. The police also received a valuable tip from the public regarding a gray Ford Focus, which was Alexander's car. A man reported that Alexander had a storage unit at Craigdon Farm where he used to store fireworks. The police arrived at the farm 30 minutes later and discovered Karen's body half decayed in the blue barrel. When questioned after Karen's blood was found at his home, Alexander said that during sex, she had hit her head on the bed frame. He said that he didn't mention it initially and tried to clean up the blood on the mattress because he didn't want to be a suspect. But when her body was found, he changed the story again, saying that after she hit her head, she became aggressive and angry, hitting him. In order to stop her, he grabbed the closest thing, which was a wrench, and he hit her on the head. None of this was true, though. Karen had never been in Alexander's house while she was still alive. The evidence only continued to mount against Alexander. Cadaver-sniffing dogs identified that a body had been in his focus, and though the car has been cleaned, traces of Karen's blood was found on the passenger side. Alexander's fingerprints were found inside the barrel, and the tires on his car had soil that matched that on the farm where the storage unit was, as well as the park. Divers found the wrench in the canal by Alexander's home and the partially burnt mattress and clothing with Karen's blood on it were also recovered. There was a mountain of evidence to link Alexander to this crime. Given the overwhelming evidence against him, Alexander Pacteau pleaded guilty to the murder of Karen Buckley. As a result, he was given a life sentence in prison with eligibility for parole in 23 years. The judge's statement during the sentencing reiterated the cruelty of Alexander's crimes. They were complete strangers who happened to meet when they stepped out of a club at roughly the same time. Addressing Alexander, she said, In a matter of minutes, for some unknown and inexplicable reason, you destroyed her young life and devastated a family. The judge, as well as Detective Jim Kerr, noted how cold and calculating he has been throughout the crime and the investigation. Detective Kerr felt that Alexander even enjoyed toying with the police when he was being interviewed. While it appears that Karen Buckley's fate was sealed by chance, the rest of the crime was fairly well premeditated. Investigators said that others who knew him had heard Alexander making comments about attacking women and disposing of a body. So although his victim was seemingly chosen by chance, Alexander may have been plotting to kill for some time. It's been over five years since Alexander began his prison sentence and it hasn't been an easy ride for him so far. Near the beginning of his sentence in 2015, he had been moved from Schatz Prison where he had initially been sent because inmates were threatening to beat him. And in 2017, he had complained that other inmates at the new prison were urinating in his soup and tampering with his food. He was housed with other sex offenders and killers who could not be in the general population prison. His meals were cooked by other inmates, but they would have no way of knowing who was going to get the food, so he wasn't necessarily targeted specifically. And most recently, in August 2019, he was moved to a different prison again after leading a riot in Kolmarnik Jail. Inmates refused to go back to their cells and smashed up CCTV and destroyed things in their cells to protest the delays in their mail. And Alexander was one of the ringleaders of the riot. The jail reported mail was being delayed more than usual as it was being checked for drugs. A source for the Scottish Sun said that Alexander was hated and that he surely would not be missed after his transfer. In the words of the sentencing judge, Ray, his killing of this young woman, combined with the extraordinary length to which he went to cover it up, display the actions of a callous and calculating man. This crime, without an apparent motive to explain it, makes it even more difficult to understand this kind of evil. Thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode. We will see you next week.
1: Crime Salad is a Weird Salad production. Are you kidding me? That was perfect.